You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, we, uh, this summer, are just going through various psalms, and what the psalms give us is a language for life with God, a way to talk about God and a way to talk to God in all kinds of emotions and circumstances, a language for life with God. Uh, if you were here last Sunday, uh, you heard Tom Gibson preach, and I told you that uh, over the next month or so, we'd be hearing from uh, various people in our church, and I know that you were eager to continue that today, but you got me. None of them could do today, so here I am. Um, back in Psalm 1, when we started this series, we, we talked about the happy person. You remember that? The whole book of Psalms begins in Psalm 1. It's an introduction to the whole thing, and the first verse is this little parable about who's happy. Uh, let me remind you what he says. He says, blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In Psalm 1, we see how happy the faithful are. But what about when we're not faithful? What about when we stray from God's path, when we do get entangled in sin? How can we be happy in God then? Psalm 32 gives us the answer. Psalm 32 begins with the same little kind of proverb as Psalm 1 did. Blessed is. And there aren't any psalms between them that begin this way. I think they're connected together. And so whereas Psalm 1 is about the the faithful, in Psalm 32 it's not the faithful who find happiness, it's the forgiven. Uh, This psalm is written by King David. And David was certainly a man who delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on God's law day and night. He's the one that wrote Psalm 1. And we see his delight in God all throughout the Psalms. But he's not without sin. Uh, Some of you know the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba uh, is a woman who was married to Uriah, but he was off at war. And uh, David, one day, home from war, saw her. She looked good to him, and he wanted her. And, you know, kings, kings get what they want. When they discovered that she was pregnant with his child, uh, David began a dark cover-up operation. He sent her husband to the front lines of battle, where shortly afterward, he died. And so he, he got away with it, at least for the time being. But you know how that goes. When you cover things up... When you carry your sin around with you, it gets heavy. It affects you. And eventually it comes into the light. And that's that's what happened with David. But even that's not the end of the story. David finds happiness with God. And he writes this psalm to tell us how. And he writes this psalm so that we can find happiness in God too. Uh, This psalm is hard to classify. On one hand, it's a testimony psalm. David shares his story, his experiences with us. But it's also a thanksgiving psalm. He gives thanks for what God has done for him. And it's an instructive psalm. He teaches. 
He's teaching us something about forgiveness. He's exhorting us to confess our sins and forgive. That's the whole point of the psalm. The whole point of the psalm is to move God's people to confess their sins and experience the joy of God's forgiveness. Here's the thing, though. We can read a psalm like this, and we can, and we can say intellectually, yeah, yeah, confession is good. Forgiveness is good. I mean, really good, for sure. And then we can leave here and not actually apply or practice confession and therefore not actually experience much of God's forgiveness. And a simple little diagnostic will just reveal this in all of us. Uh, Let's do this. I want you to think about, let's just say the last week or so. Think about all the opportunities you could have had to confess sin. Like all of the times where confession would have been appropriate. So think about the words you said, the attitudes you had, the judgment you had, willful violations of things you know God commands. Think about those things. On top of that, think about all the things you didn't say or do that God wanted you to say or do. Just kind of get a ballpark number in your head of how many of those things you think there are in the last week or so. Okay? Let's just quick show of hands. Is it like zero to ten things, opportunities? Ten to twenty. Twenty to thirty. Thirty to forty. Fifty to a hundred. Some number that you can't even begin to imagine. Is that Okay. Now, let's do, let's do another little question. How many times do you, did you confess sin? Not just like generally like, you know, God forgives, but how many times did you literally like say words to God or to people confessing the thing, the particular thing, and experiencing forgiveness for it? Is that, is that more than you can imagine? We'll go backwards here. 50 plus, 30 plus, 10 to 20, 0 to 10, are we in there somewhere? Okay, you see the huge gap? Listen, a relationship with God is not simply knowing that God forgives. It's not even having your sins forgiven in general, not just that. A relationship with God involves, and I would say requires, ongoing experience of God's forgiveness for our particular sins. That's what David experienced, and that's what he wants for us. We need ongoing forgiveness. We need forgiveness today to experience the happiness that comes with God. It's probably worth saying there's two kinds of forgiveness, and let me just use these two words. I'll, use, I'll call them judicial and religious, I mean uh, relational, not religious. Get that, strike that from the record. Relational forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness has to do with your like legal standing before God. If you have put your faith in Christ and you are in Him, resting upon His work on your behalf, You stand right before God. On judgment day, your sins will not be used against you to condemn you because Jesus has been condemned in your place. That's a legal kind of forgiveness. There's also a relational forgiveness. Uh, The relational forgiveness has to do with our ongoing fellowship with God, our our real-time experience of the forgiveness that He provides. Like, like, my kids know that I love them, and I'm pretty sure they know that nothing can change, that I tell them all the time. Right? So nothing can change that. They can't not be my kids, and I can't not love them, because they're my kids. My fellowship with my kids can go up and down dramatically in minutes, right? One, because I'm a sinner, but two, if they're not honest with me, if they're trying to deceive and hide and, and trick, 
man, it gets me, it drives me nuts. And, and there's this relational distance that just comes between us. Sometimes it's silent and sometimes it's really loud with words. Right? There's, 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 the, there's the, the difference. Their ongoing experience of my love for them has everything to do with the quality of our fellowship. And that has everything to do with coming clean with me. Psalm 32 includes both kinds of forgiveness, but I think the emphasis is on the latter. It's on the fellowship with God. And what David is saying is, you want and need forgiveness today, and if you get it, you'll be happy. So let's talk about what is forgiveness. Three things here, three questions. What is forgiveness? What keeps us from it? And how do we get it? I want to be real simple. What is forgiveness? Kind of theologically speaking. Look at, uh, we get a really nice little answer in verses 1 and 2. Look at them with me. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The concept of forgiveness is a little bit like the concept of love. Uh, We all tend to assume we know what it is. But if we start trying to talk about it, it becomes apparent that we're really only thinking of maybe one or two aspects of the thing, and that the thing itself is actually much more comprehensive than just those aspects, right? What David is giving us in Psalm 32 is a comprehensive picture. He uses three words to describe the full dimensions of human evil. Transgression, sin, iniquity. There's lots of overlap in these words, but there's some distinctions too. And he uses three words to convey the comprehensive nature of the deliverance that makes happiness possible. Forgiven, covered, not counted against us. And he pairs these words together. Transgression is forgiven, sin is covered, our iniquity is not counted against us. And in each pair brings a little fuller picture into view of of what forgiveness is and why it makes us happy. So let's look at these little pairs. The first one is that transgression is forgiven. Uh, Transgression is a political term. Todd referenced this earlier when he was talking about sin. Uh, It it means to to rebel or to commit treason. It has in mind a a very willful violation of known laws that the king has established. Think Genesis 3 here. God told Adam and Eve they could eat of any tree in the garden except this one, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He set boundaries up for his children, for their good. But that's the exact thing they did, and it was willful. They saw the fruit. It looked good to them. They took it, and they ate it. Those are all the words in Genesis 3 account. It is a willful transgression of the boundaries set by the king. The word uh, forgiven here means to lift up or carry away a burden. Our transgressions burden us with guilt. They weigh heavy on us. Our betrayal becomes this burden that we carry around with us. But God lifts our burden and carries it away. That's what it means that he forgives us. The, the ultimate picture of this is in the Old Testament is the scapegoat. That's where we get the term. It was a goat. And the priest would put his hands on the goat and he would confess the sins of the people. 
symbolically transferring their guilt to the goat. And then they would send the goat away and it would run off into the wilderness, symbolically carrying away the burden of the people's guilt. Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah to come, says this, Surely he has borne away our griefs and carried our sorrows. Why? Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And whose sin is covered. Sin's a little different. It means to, to miss the mark. It's to aim at a target and not hit it. Or perhaps to not aim at all at a target that you should have aimed at. Whereas uh, transgression has the connotation of a willful wrongdoing, sin is more like trying to do the right thing but not, not measuring up, falling short. Again, Eden comes into mind here because fallenness is connected to shame. Uh, shame is that feeling you get when, you, when you've been exposed for your failure and, and you feel like because of your failure, you don't fit in anymore. You don't belong. You're rejected. That's what Adam and Eve felt. They were naked and unashamed, which is crazy to think about. But then Moses says, after they took that fruit, their nakedness suddenly became shameful. They felt exposed and they ran and they hid from God. And but David says, blessed is one whose sin is covered. God covers our sin. The word means to, to cover or to clothe, and that's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve, isn't it? They ran from God. They tried to cover themselves with some leaves. It wasn't very good. And so God made clothes for them, and the clothes were made of animal skin. And we get this first little hint in Genesis 3 of what would come. That the forgiveness of sin would require the shedding of blood. And now that's why we sing that we are covered in the blood by the blood of Christ. Blessed is the one whose sin, whose shame, whose failure is covered. And whose iniquity is not counted against them. Uh, Iniquity is a courtroom term. It has to do with guilt. Not just the guilt of wrongdoing, but more like the status or condition of our guilt. We are guilty just by nature. In other words, um, we don't, we're not sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we have a sinful nature. We're guilty. And you can look at it this way. Say sin is like this debt that we've accrued before God and it's insurmountable. There's no Dave Ramsey debt snowball that's ever going to be big enough to get us out from under the just wrath of God against our sin. It just can't happen. And so David says, blessed is the one whose iniquity is not counted against them. And the word means that it's pardoned, that that our sin is not credited to our account. In fact, God does just the opposite. He credits the full righteousness of Christ to our account. It's amazing. Let me read you what Paul says in Romans 4. Uh, because he's talking about Abraham. And this is the word that came up in, in Genesis 15, 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him, credited it to him as righteousness. 
Paul talks about that in Romans 4, and this is what he says. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Meaning, you, you can't get the righteousness from God by working for it. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Blessed is the one whose iniquity is not counted against him. Our unhappiness, I think, is often related to fear and the shame and the guilt that we feel, that we carry around because of our sin. Therefore, the way to be happy is for your fear to be carried away, for your shame to be covered, for your guilt not to be counted against you, for it to be pardoned. And here's the key to the whole thing. Right at the end of verse 2, look how he sticks this little phrase on there. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Deceit means to deceive, to cover up, to hide. And what he's saying is this happiness, this forgiveness is there for you. God offers it freely, but the condition is that you don't try to hide. The condition is that you come clean. Jesus said it in so many ways. He said, look, I came to heal the sick, not those who are well. I came to call sinners, not the righteous. Well, look, there is none righteous. Nobody's well. Everybody's a sick. Everybody's a sinner. What he's saying is you have to understand and admit your need or you don't get it. Unless you're willing to admit your need, unless you're willing to confess your sin, you don't get the forgiveness. There can't be any deceit. There can't be any cover-up. So if God forgives sin, it's right there for the taking, what, what keeps us from it? Why do we cover up? Well, verse 3 gives us some insight here. Verse 3 and 4. David says, this is his own story. So he began with his conclusion. This is what I learned, y'all. <laughs> Happy people are forgiven people. Now let me tell you how I learned that. When I kept silent... I didn't confess my sin. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. After his sin with Bathsheba, David could have come clean. It would have been hard. There would have been consequences. But he could have confessed his sin. But he didn't. He kept silent. He didn't tell anybody. He did everything he could to make sure nobody would find out. And of course, cover-up always leads to, to more cover-up. I mean, this is the plot line of most TV shows out there right now. Cover-up begets more cover-up. Sin begets more sin. Darkness begets more darkness. And the hole just goes down. And that's what happened to David. Adultery, abuse of power, lust, murder, all this crashing down on his conscience. And he keeps silent. That's a heavy weight to carry. Why would he do that? Why did he keep silent? I assume for the same reasons we do. We don't want to see ourselves as we really are. We really don't. This is why we have such a hard time with solitude and silence. 
We just don't want to be alone with our thoughts. And so we minimize our sin all the time. Our, our mind just does all kinds of gymnastics around rationalizing our sin and comparing ourselves to others to convince ourselves that it's really not that bad. Some of us just try to flat out ignore it. Like just press it down and just busy ourselves with work and entertainment and hope that it just doesn't come back. It always comes back. Some of us don't, uh, it's not that we don't want to see ourselves as we are, we, we know all too well the depth of our sin. We don't want other people to see us as we are. And so we're always just putting our best foot forward. Uh, we will straight up lie to people just so they will keep thinking well of us just trying to cover our shame with someone else's approval. We will focus on self-improvement and achievement, just trying to cover our shame with success. This is why, we, I think, we have such a hard time building meaningful relationships with God and with each other. Because if we're committed to hiding the real us, or at least part of it, then it just forces us to constantly trying to build relationships on the surface of our lives. And they just only go so deep. Sometimes it's not what people think of us or not what we think of ourselves. It's just we're afraid of the consequences that we know are going to come. And certainly David had that before him. David tried, and we try to deal with sin in so many ways, and just none of it works. That's, that's his story. Look, look at his testimony. I kept silent. I tried to, tried to deal with it in other ways. I tried to make it work. It didn't work. My bones wasted away. Right? Carrying around this sin and this shame and this guilt, it affected him physically. It made him sick. And we know this. Like, we just... Look, non-Christian science will tell us too much stress will have an effect on your body. You carry around anxiety and shame and guilt. It, it literally can make you sick. That's what David's saying. I just got sick. I'm not saying all sickness is because of sin in your life. Not at all. I'm just saying it can be. It affected him emotionally. He was groaning all day. Like just the days were long and wearisome. He was down. You can try to ignore shame and you can try to ignore sin, but your conscience will always bring it back to the front eventually. Like it doesn't matter how much you change and how much you grow in other areas of your life. It doesn't how much your circumstances change. You can literally move cities and countries. It will come back. Just very subtly, in ways you're not even aware, the Holy Spirit will keep pushing that back to the front of your mind, and it will affect you. It will affect the way that you interact with people, and the way that you view yourself, the way that you think about God. It will affect you when you're not even thinking about it. And that's why it has such a grave consequence in your life. It deteriorates from the inside out. It affected David spiritually. Look what he says. He says, day and night, your hand, God, was heavy upon me. So, in this case, David is acknowledging the reason I feel as bad as I do is because this is God's discipline. He has just got his thumb on me and he's not going to let up until I come clean. You know how it feels when God's got that thumb on you. I mean, you don't want to pray. You don't, you don't want to be alone with your thoughts for sure. You don't want to look God in the eye, as it were. 
And you don't want to commit to community because you know if you do, it's something they're going to get in your life and it's going to come out. It just shallows your life out spiritually. Here's what David's saying. We need forgiveness. You can't deal with it in any other way. And we only get the kind of forgiveness we need from God. I don't know if you guys saw this week on, uh, well, any number of websites, Will Smith was sharing a story, the actor Will Smith was sharing a story about going skydiving. If you saw that, my version of this, his story is not going to be nearly as good as his version, so you should go watch it. But he talks about how he's always kind of had this, he tries to con- confront fear in his life. And recently he'd gone skydiving, and he says, this is how it always starts. You know, you're like hanging out with the fellows the night before, and everybody's, eventually somebody's kind of like, dude, tomorrow we should go skydiving. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we should totally do that. We should totally go skydiving. And then everybody gets home and you're like, hmm, no, I don't think I want to do that. And you start to think of what that actually is. And you feel the fear of it. Like you imagine what's, what that really means to go skydiving and it just feels terrible. It makes you anxious. You show up the next day, he says, and you're hoping that they all had the same night you had and don't want to do it either. And they did, but they're all pretending the same way you are not to have had that night. And so everybody's kind of like, yeah, we're doing this, we're doing this. And so he goes, man, so then I'm, uh, I'm on the plane, 14,000 feet up in the air. And someone opens the door of the plane. And you just realize that's not a thing that should happen. We shouldn't be on a plane with a door open. And then, you know, he went tandem skydiving, so he's attached to this guy. And uh, he said, eventually you walk up to the side of the plane where the doors open, you're right on the edge, and you have never been more scared in your life than you are right then. And the guy says, okay, on the count of three, one, two, and then on two, he he pushes you because people try to grab the plane and, and stay on. And he said, for a second, you scream, and it feels like you've died, and you're just, you're more afraid. I mean, you can't breathe for a second. It feel, I've done this. It feels like a lot longer than a second. You just can't breathe. But then... The chute opens and you're just like, Whew. and I, look, I have been thousands of feet up in the air in a parachute and I can tell you it just feels timeless. You're not falling. You're flying. It's awesome. It's bliss, he said. And you just start to take it all in. You're like, man, this is incredible. And this is what he says. The point of maximum danger is the point of minimum fear. It's bliss. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, when I was at home the night before, there was no reason to be afraid. I was in no danger whatsoever. When I got to the place and we were talking to the guys, there was no reason to be afraid. I was in no danger whatsoever. When I was in the plane even and the door was open, there was no danger. There was no need to be afraid. Yet, Those are the times I was so anxious and so afraid. The only time that I really had reason to be afraid is when I got pushed out of the plane. When I was 14,000 feet up in the air, that was the time to be afraid. And I wasn't afraid at all. It was bliss. And so why was I afraid, he asks, the night before and on the way and in the plane? Why wasn't I afraid in the moment where I should have been afraid? His conclusion is that um, the best things in life are just on the other side of the things we're most afraid of. I think it's just his way of saying what David says. You think confession is going to be a terrible,
terror. You think I'm going to be exposed. I'm going to be rejected. God can't even forgive this. You think that. You think it's going to be awful. And then you get pushed into it. And you experience the bliss and the joy of his forgiveness. And the point of maximum danger when you're before God and you're before your friends is actually the point of minimum fear. It's bliss. Happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. Will you break the silence in your life and find the joy that just waits for you on the other side of that fear? God's willing to give it to you. Anyone and anything can be forgiven. And the experience of forgiveness is is truly bliss. So how do we get it? Let's end as practically as we can. How do we get this forgiveness? You see it in verse 5. David says, I was wasting away, but I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's really that simple. We confess, he forgives. That's what John says. If we, if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, how do we confess our sins? The psalm teaches us how. Look, first he turns to God. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't try to deal with it in other ways. I didn't try to get my, sins to, my friends to help me justify my sins. I didn't bury it deep down. I finally, I just acknowledge my sin to you. And when he says, I said, I will confess my transgressions, there's like this vocal spoken commitment so that he can't go back on it. And it stands in contrast to keeping silent. I did keep silent, but finally I just, I said, I'm going to confess. He turns to God. Because all sin ultimately is an offense against God. In Psalm 51, I think confessing the same thing, he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. And it's a weird verse because you know, wait, and there's Bathsheba and her husband and lots of other people involved here. And look, there would be time to mend those relationships and to confess to those people. But first, David turns to God. He acknowledges that his rebellion ultimately is against God. And only God can carry his burden away. Second, he's honest. He says, I did not cover up my iniquity. I didn't deceive. I didn't lie. I didn't hide. To confess doesn't mean we just say what we did in fact, like with no feeling. (laughs) To confess means we open our lives up to God. We ask him as David asks, search me. Dig around in my heart, and I'm willing to talk about whatever you want to put your finger on, Lord. That's what it means to be honest. David doesn't shy away from his story. I mean, he he wrote about it in several places. And on that note, God doesn't shy away from his story. This is the man who God says is after his own heart. Yet God is not ashamed to tell us this story, this man's greatest sin and failure. In many ways, it's because we know the depth of David's sin and failure that we know the depth of God's grace and mercy. 
pastor I know uses this phrase. He says, in our community, we talk about the last 10%. Because here's the thing. When, when people confess their sin to you, um, they usually don't tell you the whole story. They tell you just enough to make you think that they've told you the whole story. But there's that 10%. They'll talk about the things that everybody's familiar with because there's no shame in that. But anything that makes them feel like if you knew it that you would reject them or that you'd be shocked or judge them, that's, that's the part they hold back. That's the last 10%. And you, you all have it. You all have that part of your story that you just won't share. Being honest about the last 10% is hard work. But that's where the shame lives. That's where you experience the depth of God's mercy and grace. The last thing he says is hide in God. So turn to God, be honest with him, and then hide in him. Verse 7, what he says to God, he says, you are a hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And so before there's these mighty waters that are rushing in upon him that he can only escape by confessing his sin and being forgiven. And he's saying on the other side of that, there's still a lot of noise, but it's not the noise of the mighty waters anymore. It's the noise of God's shouts of deliverance. Hide in God. We hide because we think that being exposed will feel like death. Paul says, Jesus was exposed for you. Jesus died for you. Colossians 3, uh, Paul says, You have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. He hides you in himself. God is a refuge for sinners. Run to him, hide in him, take refuge. And experience the shouts of deliverance that come from that kind of faith. He ends this psalm by saying, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. If you keep silent, don't actually practice this. Many are the sorrows. But if you you come clean, steadfast love surrounds you. This is covenant language. This isn't a story about how you avoid going from covenant to cover-up, one person says. This is a story about how in the midst of cover-up you can experience the covenant. It's there. He's faithful. It really comes down to will you trust God? Do you trust Him to forgive you? Do you trust Him to protect you, to take you in? Do you trust him to sustain you? Do you trust him to allow you to continue to exist in a community who knows the real you? We need and want the happiness that comes only from experiencing God's forgiveness. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.